0: welcome you are listening to the retirement lifestyle show with roshan lungani eric olson and adrian nicholson this show is an exploration of ideas to help you work toward your ideal retirement get ready for the financial independence of your dreams
1: welcome to the retirement lifestyle show i'm your co-host roshan lungani here as always with eric olson and adrian nicholson and we have a very exciting episode for you today Uh, we are on to our third episode of battle of the plans where we will present a financial plan and we will give you our different perspectives uh, on that plan eric how do you feel you ready to go
2: I am ready to go, but are, are you talking about going to spring training for
1: the <laughs> Padres? Yeah, talk about that. Where I know I'm jealous about that.
2: I'm hopping on a plane Saturday morning. I'm going to head out and uh, be in position to watch the first two games of spring training, first against the Mariners, then against the Cubs. We've got tickets. My best friend's coming. And so, uh, in fact, we've got room for two more. So, uh, or two two more on Monday. So, if you've got friends in the Phoenix area who'd like to join us, uh, that that'd be awesome.
3: Yeah, I wish I can go with you, uh, Eric. Are you going to be fully geared out? Geared out with like a hat <laughs> on, like a little sign, your your jersey, and everything.
2: You know what, Adrian? I
3: should get that. It's all inside. It's right here. My friend, it's right here. So I don't, but I don't have any of the gear. That'd be that'd be great. And you should hold a little retirement lifestyle show sign up just in case you get on camera. That'd be that'd be that'd be awesome.
2: Oh, c- constant self promotion—that's fantastic. Well,
3: Eric, how are you going to feel at that Cubs game? Right, you're
1: being a Chicago guy. I know you're a Padres fan, but when they're not no. playing each other, you, you're a Cubs fan, right?
2: Yeah, I do. I certainly wish them well, but when it's head to head, there is. It's hands down Padres, Padres all the way.
1: Oh <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that should be a lot of a lot of fun. I'm I'm jealous not only that you're going to spring training, but that that you're going to someplace warm. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So right now, in the backdrop, the
2: reason that that window is so bright is because the sunlight is just reflecting on all the snow all around here. But anyway, that's us. How about you? How are you guys doing?
3: I'm doing great. I'm excited. We kind of got the band back together. All three of us are on a <laughs> podcast. I'm, I'm really excited for today's episode. Yeah I'm, yeah,
1: I'm sorry I missed, uh, missed last week's uh, episode, but I'm definitely excited and happy to be back. So Adrian, why don't you start us off? Tell us about this uh, financial planning situation. Um, uh, give us some of the background and the uh, important data points, and then Eric and I will start uh, going over some of the ideas that we've had as well.
3: Yeah, of course, Roshan. Thank you. Yeah, I'm going to be excited. Like, like Roshan said, we're doing another battle of the plans episode and I'll be taking on a more of a moderating role today. I'm very excited for it to uh, kind of challenge and see some of the different strategies and plans that Eric and Roshan put forward today. Uh, normally in the battle of the plans, what we do is we evaluate a client's hypothetical financial situation. And today we have a couple and we're going to analyze their financial situation. And Roshan and Eric have analyzed the data. They had the data um, beforehand and they prepared for us uh, a financial plan. They're going to discuss different approaches and different tactics to to use to see what might be the best course or route for this uh, hypothetical client to take and we we know there are a number of considerations and approaches when it comes to looking at someone's financial situation and what we want to do today is kind of give you a a firsthand experience on how that approach how that approach works so kind of laying down the uh groundwork today we have a married couple we're going to call them Jane and John they're in their sixties and their investment profile they're moderate investors moderately conservative investors they're both Currently working right now, they're getting ready to uh, move on from employment and move into retirement. They have around $20 million in assets, and this is made up Two of million. Uh, $2 million in assets with, around, <laughs> um, with cash, money market funds. They have a Roth IRA, a 401k plans. They have annuities, personal property, real estate. For cash in, inflows and outflows, they have around a quarter million dollars, and they have around 130000 and expenses. And when they retire, they also have insurance policies, they have a pension. So these are all kind of little details that make up their overall financial plan. And some of the topics we're gonna discuss today are just ways where we look at their data and see what are some approaches that we can take, what are some um, different routes that we can take to overall have their assets last their lifetime and that they don't have to make any lifestyle adjustments or anything there, so Eric, let's uh, start with you off today. Um, these clients they walk through your door, they're like Eric, you're you have such a great personality. Your smile brightens up the room. Where should we begin when we look at our financial picture?
2: Oh, so that's why people hire me. Okay, this is awesome. I need to I need to reposition <laughs> how I approach people. Uh, so, well, uh, yeah. So the conversation began with uh, concern about will we have sufficient resources to retire. And particularly in the case, in this case, I'll call her Janie wanted to know whether it might be possible to retire this year for her at least. And, um, and I'll John, I'll call him JD. So JD, uh, JD was thinking, no, I want to, you know, I'm thinking just default assumption. I'm going to work for another five, five, six years, something like that. So the question was, well, can we pull this off? And that was really the starting point. And so, After pulling all the numbers together, uh, I came back to them with some answers about whether I thought that was, that was feasible.
1: Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, um, I do want to say something on this, on this case as we get into it. Um, uh, Adrian's being a little bit modest, him and I worked together on this one. So, uh, so I will share some of my conclusions of the credit for that with Adrian, but I, I
3: we do appreciate you taking the moderator role yeah, today. I appreciate, I appreciate the shout out, Roshan. Yeah. I'll, I'll give yeah. my little handle, hashtag, come follow me and all that at the end. Yeah. I mean, I just wanted them to
1: know you're more than a pretty face. Yeah, okay. I'm You've excited. got some let's brains get, too.
3: Let's, let's get right into it, Roshan. Where would you start? These clients walk into your door, they're like... Roshan, you've been in the retirement game for some time. You're very funny. You're low key funny. You're a great guy to be around. You're a family man. We we love all those qualities, and we we want you to kind of help us and direct our financial future. Where would you Where would you begin?
1: Yeah. Well, so that's why they're
2: hiring yeah. you. I didn't
3: know that yeah, either. I, kinda,
1: I need more jokes. <laughs> but uh, Eric, I I so, so you're the first question they had for you of Are we on track for retirement? That's the approach that we um, always look at first, right? We go through. What are their goals and are these goals feasible? And Eric, tell me what you came up with. My initial conclusion is they actually are not on track. And it could be our I think our assumptions may differ here, which is why they could be different. One that I thought of um, at the beginning is you tend to run life expectancy calculations and I tend to go with uh, I want to make sure you have enough till age 100. We have different reasons. That's uh, in the financial planning world. You'll hear a lot of people in the space say financial planning is an art, not a science. And that's where as artists, we're a little bit different. I like the age 100 and you like running the, um, the actual numbers. So my age 100 target, when I say they're not on track, I had them running out of money before age 100. Uh, did you, Yeah. how much earlier? Oh, I'd have to pull that up right now and see, but oh, I think okay. it was, I think it was the, it was early nineties. I actually can pull that up in a, in a second and tell you, I have them running out without adjustments. Cause we do have some other adjustments that we, um, that we made and some other risk analysis based scenarios, but just starting out with pure, do they have enough to maintain this lifestyle? We have them running out at age 91.
2: Yeah. So that's it's mine was not 91 but it was pretty close to that and it was it was if this is based on your statement I assume as well as based on an assumption in the first version of the analysis that we do a straight uh, straight line assumption about inflation and a straight line assumption about consumption straight line assumption about returns to their portfolio
1: correct Exactly exactly yeah so and I want to explain that uh for everybody what Eric is saying is that we're saying their expenses are the same Every year, uh, you know, they currently are 62 and 65. So we're saying for the next third, in my case, 38 years, because I'm going out till age 100, expenses stay exactly the same. That's definitely not realistic, but that's an assumption we go with, similar to uh, inflation and growth rates. So uh, that's where I get that they're not on track using those assumptions. Now, I know those aren't real and uh, their spending is going to vary by year. Inflation and growth rates, all those things will vary. Uh, but I tend to go what I think is higher on inflation, lower on investment assumption, uh, growth rate assumptions and pushing out till age 100. All these things are are little things baked in the formula that uh, all these conservative assumptions to me help ensure that they always have enough.
2: Yeah. What were you assuming for inflation and returns to their portfolio? So the
1: returns to their portfolio is is an interesting one. Um, uh, inflation, we, we're using 3.76, the historical inflation number. Returns to their portfolio is interesting because for this client's case, they've got a big chunk of their portfolio in cash and a big chunk of their portfolio, or a decent amount, in annuities that aren't really returning much. So because of that, we've got a very low growth rate which is actually below in my inflation assumption it's 3.09 percent right now is what we have okay what did you have for that's their growth rate actually
2: all right so i was assuming as you know you've heard me say in previous episodes i normally use an inflation assumption of four just to be a little bit on the safe side i know that's slightly higher than normal but i think that's that's prudent to have slightly higher than normal because then if we come in lower than that hey it's a it's a win and it's upside rather than them uh, w- wondering why their financial planner set them up for failure. Right. So on that level, but in this instance, because we, I, my shift, my thinking about Fed policy concerning uh, interest rate management in light of a twenty-eight trillion dollar federal debt is that the Federal Reserve will be more active in the next thirty years than it was. Yeah. You know in over the last 50 years on balance to try to suppress interest rates if for no other reason than to manage manage the balance sheet of the united states and the and the cash flows on so from that standpoint i went ahead and i i recently have adopted a 3.5 percent inflation rate i know that doesn't sound like a dramatic shift to maybe some of our listeners but honestly it does it does move the needle on the plan so I might I might be pressing it a little bit, but i I've, that's what I've adopted recently. It's three and a half. Well,
1: and to, for for everyone listening, that that what sounds like a small adjustment actually can have a major impact because it compounds every single year for the next uh, thirty eight years. Uh, also to note, Eric, that rate of return assumption I've used that's based on their current portfolio, not the portfolio we would recommend to them, because we definitely have some adjustments that we'd like to do. Now, those recommended adjustments in that portfolio change, we're actually going to discuss in part two of our episode.
3: Yeah, that's great. That's a great starting point, Roshan. And I I like how we're starting off with these uh, these adjustments to inflation and growth rate. And I think it's uh, really important running these scenarios in the beginning, seeing these different outcomes. Do we want to run a conservative outcome? Do we want to um, run maybe a, a different outcome just to lay out these options I think are really important, and like you say, they do have um, a good amount of cash on hand and some annuities that are fixed so inflation is definitely going to be a big impact when you're looking at uh, looking at it from a risk perspective
1: yeah interestingly, I think um this is very typical of people that will see planning their retirement. I don't know if it's coincidental or, or this happens, but seeing more cash as people get just sort of stockpiling it, I wonder if psychologically people are thinking, "I'm going to stop working. Let me have this chunk of cash." To seeing this extra cash and maybe a uh, a uh, a little more conservative approach to their investment management, uh, uh, even than they need to be, uh, I I tend to see that a lot. Eric, is that a common thing that you're seeing that you see as well for people that are within a year or two of retirement?
2: Yes. I mean, there's understandably, I I think in some people's cases, just a sleep at night factor that goes with the amount of cash that they have. And I I would say on the one hand, it, it depends, I would say on a client by client case, but if there are enough resources that you could pull it off, with some adjustments and we'll talk about some of the adjustments that we made that are, that are not specifically getting into the weeds on the investment side, but if you can, if you can pull it off with some adjustment and then still let people have that sleep at night, um, factor with, a with a significant chunk of cash, I'm all for that Yes, because I do think, you know what, if you are, if there is a downturn, two clients in every respect equal, except that one has cash and one does not then the market tanks uh the client that has no cash there is in in both real in terms of real activity as well as in psychological response to it has to start now taking their distributions if they're in their retirement out of the the now depressed values of their portfolio whereas this, the and also is anxious about it whereas the second client who has the cash portfolio structured in exactly the same way less of it of course though because their total net worth is the same but more is in cash the rest of their portfolio tanks in percentage terms just as much but they're sleeping more peacefully because they're eating not uh the the corpus of their principal, but instead they're just eating this cash that they have set aside and so they're they're sleeping better and they're actually not damaging their portfolio so if that you know if that strategy is available to people i'm i'm all for it yeah
1: and that's that's why we discuss cash targets, and you know the general rule when I started, they would say anywhere from a minimum of two to six months uh, of ca- of your expenses is what you should have on hand in cash. However, that range is huge, and it really does depend on the individual. Uh, another uh, thing worth noting with your uh, with the cash in general, your retirement capital, your all your capital, right? It's a resource. And you've got to allocate that resource to different areas to accomplish what you'd like. And one of those areas you need to allocate it towards is that sleep at night factor, right? So you've got to take that, utilize that resource uh, in the area it should be. So I don't want to minimize the, uh, the value of cash. Not only, Eric, how you described uh, in the situation of a market going down, but even if the market isn't going down, uh just what you need there to sleep well at night that's that's its use that's its purpose of that capital and if it falls below those levels then you can replenish it i have that happen with clients all the time who are retired where they want x in cash and then they have a major home repair and it goes down a little bit and then our discussion is hey should we replenish that cash sometimes it's yes sometimes it's well I have a little bit extra every month from all my income streams i'll just let it grow back but making sure that resource is allocated to uh, appropriately is a very important uh we used to say that's one of the building blocks of your financial plan right the cash you have
2: just as an aside it's uh, this interesting that we're having this conversation because um with us in a separate client conversation this week i have a, a client who's in retirement who, uh, but it was an aggressive investor. Really wants to be, you know, aggressively allocated all the time, or at least I'll say much more, much more aggressively, I guess, than I would say we t- normally think is is a customary, if not advisable, for somebody who is uh, in the early stages of their retirement. And so instead of being, let's say, moderate or moderate conservative uh, in the early going, this client wants to be moderate aggressive. So what I've done in just this last run-up, when we had the a pretty nice pretty nice run-up in the fall, I said, okay, let's, your million dollars, uh, uh, that's sort of the, the primary source of growth in your portfolio, let's just take $100,000 off the table and set that aside. If, if Because if this was a momentary thing where we got this run-up and then we're going to get a run-down, you'll be glad that you're not asking me to send you you know, to sell positions to, to finance your monthly living expenses, because that's what we do. I don't know. I think you br- probably do it the same way. We just set up a paycheck that comes out of, of the client's account. And then and then this client said after just two or three weeks of that, oh, I'm uncomfortable with this much cash. I want it working. So we put 50 back to work. Uh, but now more recently, when we've had still another spurt and the, the portfolio, that same, we'd brought it back down to a million and, and, and set some of that, Stuff aside and some other things, but the primary workhorse part grew another 10%. And so, once again, I'm saying, let's take 10%, you know, let's take $100,000 off the table and set it aside. And, you know, that's so that's one of those conversations that we have with clients is of how much, how much, uh, how many months worth of expenses would we want to protect so that you could weather uh, a, a full cycle of a downturn? And so, in this case, my target is in her case, and, and this isn't true for every client, but in her case, it's about two years. If she was invested conservatively or moderately conservatively, then I wouldn't feel a need to do that because I would recognize the portfolio is probably not likely to suffer as much damage in a broad equity market downturn. Yeah,
1: another point I'd add on to your uh, story of your client is that I found that people believe they risk tolerant, the people's risk tolerance shifts with what the market's doing. So if the markets are up, uh, it's easy to say you're aggressive, right? And when, when things pull back, um, people, so what I tend to find is when I have a risk tolerance conversation with the same person, the markets are up, they'll tend to be more aggressive. If they're down, they'll tend to be more conservative. And we try to help you figure out that balance and where you should
3: be. Yeah, that's great. Yes. Kind of setting those targets beforehand are, are extremely important and they're, they're good reference points. Again, like you say, and whatever the market environment may be, just having that target that you, you set before can really be a, a good starting point on what you can do moving forward, I think is uh, really great. And I really appreciate you sharing that, uh, that client story as well, Eric. That was a great example. So let's uh, move a little bit forward, uh, Roshan. Is there anything else when you were looking at the, um, this couple's financial data that you think is also an important point to note or something that you can see another adjustment being made because we we already spoke about the inflation aspect which is important in this situation we discussed growth rates and making minor adjustments and assumptions here so what, what would be the next uh step you would take here roshan
1: well once i've come up with the answer to that the, their initial question of are you on track or not and we determine in this case they're not i i view as as i've got to fill the gap and for me the gap is they have enough till age 91. How do we get them from age 91 out to 100? And we've already touched on this in our next episode, we'll focus on it. But one of the adjustments is, is can we do better in their portfolio performance? From my view, uh, and we, we had them uh, classified as a moderate investor, but with my view of a moderate investor, their portfolio is extremely conservative. So we've got to make some adjustments there, and that'll help push things out further till age, um, till age 91. I'll just mention the other levers I looked at adjusting, try to close that gap, and there is a potential risk I want to go out to, uh, over later, but I really viewed two things to potentially help fill the gap. One is that portfolio adjustments, trying to do better, make their money work harder, uh, maybe we introduce them to your aggressive friend and have them have some conversations, Eric. And uh, the the other thing is uh, social security, determining at what age to take social security. I found that uh, before we step into the risk uh categories that they have risks in terms of what could cost them their retirement. Um, those were the two levers I was looking at adjusting, and found that by adjusting one or both, and I would personally prefer a combination just to be safer, um, that they're able to then extend that from what I had as age 91 out till age 100. Eric, how about you? What, what did you look at possible adjustments or possible ways to fill that gap?
2: Well, first of all, let me just say, I, I like you, viewed their portfolios natural, um, the current structure of it with a very, very low return. And and even though I assumed moderate conservative, unlike you, who you were you assumed moderate um, in this plan at least in terms of that what their underlying risk tolerance uh, was. It, both of us agreed that there was room for them to have more growth in that portfolio to, as part of the overall solution. So in the end, uh, the uh, the growth rate that I assumed was derived from Morningstar projections for the next 20 years for the asset class mix that I would uh, use for a moderate conservative investor. And that uh, growth rate was just a little bit more than inflation. So three and a half percent was my inflation assumption. It was just slightly more than that on the portfolio. So in terms of real return against that inflation, they would just be sort of maintaining on that level uh, of the uh, and then keeping the purchasing power of the of the portfolio um, more or less constant, and then essentially on the underlying level then consuming the corpus of that. But the- um, yeah, Actually, let me interrupt you for a second like, there, just with that yeah, investment certainly.
1: rate of return. So the initial number I have in there that says they're not on track, uh, my software looks at their um, holdings, and it looks at the average, uh, previous 50-year return of those asset classes, and it actually calculated 3.09. So I'm using 3.76 for inflation. My software is using 3.09. Now, my software has its own assumptions for that moderate versus moderately conservative numbers, and it actually it uses six for moderate. Now, what's different between this six for moderate versus your Three and a half, and let me actually, without looking deep into the software, I'm just going to hardwire adjust that down to around five. I think is their moderately conservative assumption. So let's just say I use even five for their moderately conservative. Uh, What I find interesting is your number from Morningstar is projecting they think it'll the the rate of return will be X, but they're basing that on historical performance and where we stand now. Whereas my software is using it purely on historical and no projections, and the gap there is a, is 1.5%, which literally is the difference in this client's case between being on track or not. So Eric, when I plug in your assumption of 3.5 as a rate of return, now remember, I was originally using 6, and I, I, we're not done with that, but that 6 did get them to be on track for their retirement. When I shift that to use your number of 35 they actually lose a year because my th- that's actually behind my inflation assumption.
2: Yes, yes, right. No, I understand that. So, so the and I'm not necessarily saying that I, I share Morningstar's view, but I would say that the prevalence of projections to asset class returns from all the sources that I consult, again, you're using historical. I'm re- referencing now projections. These projections are all forecasting much more subdued returns going forward than we've enjoyed um his you know in the rearview mirror yeah
3: and this is a really interesting discussion right here we're we're talking about percentages one percent half a percent just these minor shifts in growth rate can make a potentially great uh, difference when it comes to looking at this um this couple's financial plan again um just shifting the growth rate just a little bit can have an extremely big impact and that's why we think it's uh, fruitful to have this discussion where you really want to look at the numbers and really plan ahead because this 1% difference or this half percent difference can mean having a, a little bit more extra funds in your years of retirement, I think, are extremely important to note here. And
1: remember, this is straight lining the assumption, right? The, the return. So in Eric's case, uh, his number says they're they're essentially meeting inflation every year so their investment growth isn't actually going to help them uh, in terms of having enough money for retirement. Whereas in, in my assumption that I had used, now initially we use different risk tolerance. So that really comes up to the client. But even if I dial it back a little bit from my risk tolerance number, I have them actually making up some ground. So this is where that risk tolerance discussion is very important with their comfort level. Because Eric, if I'm using your scenario of three and a half, uh, and let's assume that they are actually conservative investors. Um, and we have some other adjustments. So I'll talk about the Social Security one next. But I've got to have a conversation with them saying, okay, do you want to work a couple more years versus retiring now? Or do you want to try to be a little bit more aggressive? Let's just say they decide the more aggressive route. I then will take real numbers on their portfolio and say, you know, it, let's just, to make the math simple, let's say their portfolio is a million dollars. And I'd say, okay, market's down 20%. You had a million three months ago. Now you're down to 800,000. How are you reacting? Because it's very easy for someone to say, hey, I'll take on a little bit more risk. But when you give them real numbers and real scenarios, their attitude might shift. So we've got um, three or four uh, stress test conventions uh, or stress test questions, excuse me, that we'll use for clients to see if they will actually be comfortable with that risk or they're just saying it because they think it's an easy solution for their financial plan.
3: Yeah, that's a great point. And yeah, Eric, I, want, I definitely want you to touch on what Roshan said. And then after that, we can probably, I'd love to hear what your opinion is on their social security as well, Eric, because Roshan touched on that before. But please, yeah, go ahead, Eric.
2: Sure. Well, so this is, I like the conversation we're having today because it seems as though we're really doing more of a qualitative exploration of principles than strictly the prescriptions for this client. And that's it's, that's for me always more interesting because what principles can we generalize to from the specifics of a, a a certain client's scenario and particularly given some of the assumptions we've had about growth rates. So um, <clears throat> I, I will, I'll say it slightly differently. So let's just um, uh, then you said it, Roshan. The growth rate that we're, again I'm just taking at face value what Morningstar is projecting here for the next 20 years, and I'm also then you know having this this assumption about inflation that it, that that one is actually historically based primarily with a slight modification, which I explained earlier in this conversation about my outlook on the Fed policy with respect to interest rates and inflation. So the um, what I guess I would say is is that in this case, since it's going to be, if the only sources of income they had were their portfolio, I completely agree there'd have to be, there's gotta, something's gotta give. If you you know have a growth rate on the portfolio, because just let's just, as listeners, just consider this for just a moment. Normally, we, if you had nothing that you could use for, to fund your retirement other than your portfolio, Really, what you do is you'd say growth rate on the portfolio minus inflation because you need to leave whatever's the inflation rate in there so that the, the underlying buying power of your portfolio the following year is the same as it was this year. So growth rate minus inflation, that's what you have left to live on. So if inflation is three and a half and you're thinking, I want to live on 5% of my portfolio each year, well, then you really need to have eight and a half. And that's eight and a half, incidentally, that's eight and a half after taxes. And if you're relying on an advisor to help you with some of this, it's after those expenses too. So, and then if you come in and you say, "But we wanna be moderate conservative, it's not, the math just doesn't work there, which isn't, this is not incidentally an argument that you should be more aggressively allocated. It's just a, an observation about the reality of the math of it all.
1: And Eric, it comes down to this specific client's case, right, the, the bottom line with this scenario uh, we both came to the conclusion. Well, I shouldn't. I, I, I shouldn't say we both. I came to the conclusion that they weren't on track. Do you? Ha- your what life expectancy assumption did you use? I had that their money lasts till ninety one, and I'm assuming they're going to live till a hundred. What did you? What were you using for life expectancy?
2: Uh, well, for base life expectancy for for JD, I was assuming eighty three, and base life expectancy for for Janie. I was assuming 90, but in the plan, because I wanna hedge against the possibility of a longer than expected life expectancy, I add essentially one standard deviation to that, which in this case meant that uh, JD was at 90, and Janie was at 97. So
1: that's where you're, that, so you had it there wasn't enough for Janie to live. They're still running out of money around a similar age that I have, but JD's passed away, so he's, he he didn't really run out, right? It's Janie that doesn't have enough.
2: Well, it, it ran out about his. It ran out about his uh, age, eighty-seven, I think.
1: Okay, and he's uh, he's a couple years, yeah,
2: three years, three years younger. younger. So at yeah. his eighty-seven and her ninety, the money's gone, except for the house. At which point, then they they would be able, if they wished to, to do a reverse mortgage and fund it that way. But fortunately, they have some pensions, and fortunately, they, they when we ran the numbers, I came back with uh, an optimization recommendation about their social security uh, withdrawals. So, did you did you in, instead of assuming in in moving from the analysis of how they were doing to what you'd recommend that they instead do, did you change? Uh, in any way a recommendation about when to take Social Security?
1: Yeah, and so what we did was uh, we started out assuming they took it at their full retirement age. We then modeled uh, if either of them individually adjusted it till age 70 and then if both of them pushed it back till age 70. And um, we think they both need to push it back till age 70 because they need that higher fixed income. if in the And... That actually makes their money last longer, even though they, uh, and conceptually think about it, you're taking money out earlier because your Social Security starts later, but then at the end, they still have more money because in future years, they need to withdraw less from their accounts because their Social Security income is higher. But we found that um, they definitely need that higher uh, fixed income in the future. Plus, if they run out of money, we want to make sure their fixed income is higher in the future.
3: Yeah, that was definitely an interesting point when we were looking at the the data erosion. And there's also the kind of psychological element of Social Security where there's some people where I just want that fixed income now. I just want to be receiving those benefits as soon as I can. But again, this episode's another example where you want to really look at the numbers, really look at the data to see, I'll run those scenarios to see, am I better off waiting till I'm age 70? Am I Am I better off or would make no difference if I take it now and really looking at the math of it all to seeing what may be the better outcome yeah that's uh it was really interesting to look at um what do you think eric
2: yeah so i'll just mention for our listeners that not all social security optimization uh software is created equal but uh there but nonetheless there's some good ones out there and so, when we ran it using those life expectancy assumptions that I gave earlier and the numbers that we were assuming uh, would be their full retirement age, um, what's known as primary insurance amount, PIA for under Social Security, what we came back with was that Janie should claim it at 70 and JD should claim at 69. So, with that, then, so that was step one of the remedy. <laughs> the, the, the remedial approach was to say, all right, let's shift the, the Social Security out. Now, as you already indicated, a lot of times clients will go, "What, what, are we, what are, we, what are we supposed to do for income in between the time that we retire and we turn on Social Security?" And besides, it's my money and I want it now, which is you know the uh, a well-known uh, late night <laughs> infomercial, right? So the um, so in that case, uh, I have you know I then I that sets me into motion with examining. What would be the ideal withdrawal strategy for these clients? Did you guys look at that?
1: Uh, we did look at the uh, withdrawal strategies. Yes.
2: Okay, tell me what you came well, up with, or how did you approach well, when
1: it? When we looked at it, we found, so for one, we de- definitely looked at delaying Social Security. So we both came to the same conclusion there, right? So the, the other thing we looked at was we looked at their re- minimum distributions, and we found that um, oftentimes, at, so. Minimum distributions means you're now 72 and you're required to take money out of your traditional IRAs and 401ks. And what we'll see sometimes is that people are taking out more than they need. The government's requirement is greater than their uh, their required withdrawals for their expenses. Unfortunately, in this case, we didn't see that. We saw there were a few years here and there where... Um, there was roughly a one percent difference and you know, they, they were taking out one percent more but it wasn't that significant we started down that path thinking is uh, our roth conversion something they should consider uh if you remember this uh client has a, a lot of extra money just sitting in cash so our thought was okay you do the roth conversions pay the tax out of that cash account you thus have the full amount being deferred and tax-free and a key difference is the Roth IRA doesn't have this required minimum distribution. But we found that it, it, it actually wasn't worthwhile for them because their di- required distributions were not significantly higher than their needs.
2: All right. So your approach in, the, in, in light of that, it, you didn't employ Roth IRA conversions. No. But um, what sources of money, did you, of, of wealth, their base of wealth, did you call upon during the years between their retirements and turning on social security. So theory. I'll tell you,
1: this is where um, the software uh, gives us an outcome, and what we do in real life does differ. So the, so- the software orders just orders it for us. It says, look at uh, non-qualified money first, which is like brokerage accounts, cash on the bank, um, uh, those type of, in-, in any taxable investments, that type of uh, area first. It then looks at retirement accounts second, and then it has you pull the Roth third. Um, I don't actually make adjustments to that within the financial plan, but we update this plan dynamically at our meetings with our clients. We typically meet with them two to four times a year. So in the real world, I'll let the software say what it says, but I'll look at their tax bracket situation and make active adjustments on an annual basis. That's a similar approach that I would take with the Roth conversion, right? Even though the software and the required minimum distribution number doesn't necessarily say, hey, we should do a Roth conversion, but if I see that they're in a bracket that will probably jump up the following year because of, or in the following few years because of either potential tax law changes or because of um, um, their required minimum distributions, we will still then go ahead and do the conclusion, uh, do the conversion, excuse me, but that doesn't factor in our in our... Uh, overall conclusion. Now, that's another key point. Though your financial plan is dynamic, it's it's uh, it's um, obsolete the day after you run it because the markets have moved.
2: <laughs> that's true, and I, that's why I think I ex- explain to clients what we're talking about here. You're perhaps you've been trained to think of this as you're coming to get a financial plan, and my counsel to you is to come to get a financial planning relationship where there's ongoing planning. <laughs> Uh, so it, I think you and I are are uh, on the same page there. So, so let me just say that with respect to the income um, withdrawal strategy, I do think that that's 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 at least something that I do want to look at during the planning stage. And so I, def- I my starting point is to assume, as you do, that first use the taxable money up, because you know all being all else being equal, then. You won't get hit with uh, long-term capital gains, short-term capital gains, income you know, and dividend taxes, you know, investment income taxes, and then you can just let the rest of it be tax-deferred. But I also look at whether or not the inverse of the conventional wisdom, or at least a modification of that conventional wisdom, which is, let's see what happens if we take a significant share of their spending needs from their IRAs during those, during that that lull in income between shutting off the earned income paycheck and and then commencing with the social security let alone the required minimum distributions and what happens in that is just i guess it's probably useful for our listeners just to just have a quick refresher about tax rates you know sometimes you sometimes you hear people well, what's your tax rate when you think oh you know and then you you, you take a guess a lot of times 22 25, I don't know. But the truth is is that we all have, the the first, let's say, amount of our income is not taxed at all because we use either a a standard deduction or an itemized deduction. So whatever of those two is higher, our tax rate on that amount of our income is zero. Then the next, if you're married filing jointly, the next roughly 20 grand is taxed at 10%. The next 60 grand roughly is taxed at 12%. The next uh, 100,000 some is taxed at uh, 22% and so on. So it's just, you're, you're kind of moving up through a series of brackets. Well, why that's important is that we want, and at least what I wanted to look at was, if we if we used up all the opportunity for being taxed at zero, 12, zero 10, and 12, would we be able to pull out a lot of that money at really low tax rates compared to the tax rates at which they put it in, you know, they, they, when they put it in, they were deferring at 22 and 24 and now they're pulling it out and they're taking it zero, 10 and 12. That's a win. So, you know, that's what we're, that's what we looked at. And when I did that, the outcome improved. So I, I kept that version my prescription was okay, let's have you postpone social security till 70 and 69 for Janie and JD respectively. And then let's use IRA withdrawals up at least to the 12% level uh, during the, that early interval years, yeah. between re- retiring and starting social security.
1: Yeah. And I'm trying to look up to see if that was adjusted in what we, what we did. I don't think that adjustment was made, but that's one that I, as I said, I do in real time. So I didn't capture, uh, if that helped them or not. Uh, I do have one risk factor I want to review with you J- before I go into that. Aside from adjusting their portfolio, adjusting their with the their order of withdrawals and delaying Social Security, did you have any other ideas that you saw purely for helping them make sure they have enough uh, for their life?
2: Yes. So the the, the they wanted uh, to cover the risk of long term care. That's
1: my hold on. That's my risk factor. We're, we'll get to that second. Oh, okay. Did so, you have anything not, else okay. purely with the goal of let's let's make sure. They have enough, there's money enough without risk, yeah. yeah.
2: So, the yeah, so when we map expenses, we map them into um several buckets. So, there's medical allocation, we don't mess with that, we try to be realistic about that. Taxes, we're of course not going to mess with that. <laughs> Property taxes included in all of that. Insurance in insurance policy premiums, we don't, you know, we're not going to mess with that. But of the lifestyle expenses. We divide those into two categories. One are those that are for the most part fixed. You can move fixed expenses somewhat. You can turn your heat down a little bit, but you can, you know, or you can drive a little less, but you really can't move the needle much on some of those. But the other category, other than those fixed expenses, is your your, your discretionary expenses. How much are we going to spend on eating out? How much are we going to spend on travel? How much are we going to spend on shows? How much are we going to spend on giving gifts to family members, et cetera, et cetera? And I recognize there's not, there's not perfect um, you know in, perfect flexibility around all of that, but there's some. So in this case, we protected all of those sort of categories that really we would never want to mess with, including their fixed expenses. But on the discretionary side, we said, hey, to, to boost your confidence a little bit here, that you can make it all the way to the finish line i would i would recommend that you reduce those expenses by about 15 percent. in other words travel just that you know eat out uh uh let's say six times in a month rather than seven or whatever the number that
1: starts now or is that some point in the future in their retirement
2: that starts now
1: and so let me ask you a question on that if you recommend that to them do you put that assumption in your plan now
2: Yes, after having the conversation with them and saying, would you be willing to do this? Because I don't want to build a plan on an assumption that you're not willing to execute. Well,
1: see, here's how I differ from that. I'll have that conversation, but I don't put that in until they've proven they can do that.
2: <laughs> well, there you no, so, go. That's yeah, that's why. Yeah, so mm-hmm. I'll
1: I'll tell them, OK, let's do this. Let's see if you can do it. Then six months from now, all right, if you did it, let's lower it now.
3: Yeah, kind of, kind of creating it as a habit just to see and then incorporating the plan is is a big part of it. And we know the expenses are, they fluctuate, they vary year over year and the more you're able to lower it or have those years where your, uh, your income is more, the infos are more than expenses can help you push out further in the year. But yeah, Roshan, can you continue on that idea? I think this is a great discussion right here.
1: Yeah. Well, what, here's what I found if when I've had the expense conversation with people is that, uh, and I think, Sometimes people get concerned that advisors are going to tell them to spend less money, right? When they when they go into an advisor, and I always counter that with, we just give you your options and you decide what you want to do. So if, if if spending less can help you achieve your goals, and we say, hey, do you would would you be willing to spend less? If you say no, that's fine. You just find something else, possibly work longer for that additional spending, whatever whatever it is. But you decide those 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 things. But the other thing I found though, Eric, is that Um, I've had multiple clients who see the numbers and see the outcome. And then I'll say something like, well, you know, you reduced your spending, this, this would help. And, uh, then they, they on their own initiative will lower it. So it's not necessarily me giving them the prescription of, Hey, lower your spending. It's that, you know, if you spend less, you're able to uh, achieve this goal versus what you're spending now. Are there areas that are low that you can lower your expenses?
2: Well, that's, that's interesting. And I'll just report that in this particular client's case, it is, um, there's, there's a desire on Janie's part to see JD not push out his retirement so many years.
1: Ah, so she wants him to retire. And in this case, there's a five-year gap, right? She's retiring, is it four years before him?
2: She would retire this year, and then he would retire in another four. So she's thinking, well, could you maybe just extended by maybe one beyond mine, and then we could actually go do some stuff. And so he says, Well, okay, what would that take? And that actually was where this where this idea of, hey, well if you're willing to trim back on the discretionary part by about a sixth, then I think we can I think we can say, you know, look you in the eye with a and 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 tell you that it looks like you'd be in pretty good shape, even if you you uh, retired three years earlier, JD, than you were previously thinking about, and so there now there's a carrot that's uh, motivating that spending reduction.
1: And Eric, I'd love to go deeper into that conversation, but I just want to move us on mm-hmm. on the plan because I okay, I, yeah, I great. have some thoughts and ideas on there. But so the the when you mentioned earlier long term care, I put that in the risk category, uh, and the and not only from a in the industry they call it risk management and so on, more that. I look at their financial plan, and, and I look at it first from the perspective of, okay, if you're not on track, how do we get you on track? And then it's, it's well, what can take it away from you, right? And in this case, uh, the long-term care risk that they need extended care or they have um, uh, major health care needs could completely dis, uh, derail their retirement plan. I'm just going to start with the assumptions I used. I use the the national average numbers. Average person going in at around age 80. Uh, average cost, a little under 80000 a year. And average duration, how long they need the care for, uh, of um, three years. And we indexed it with inflation for a, an inflation growth rate, saying these costs are going up every year at 5% a year. What are your thoughts on the assumptions first?
2: I'm pretty close. So I assume that um, for my... the info that I've seen on this is that for those fellows, roughly a third of, of men, roughly a third, it turns out will need some degree of care. And of those that do my, what at least the numbers that I've seen suggest that their average, which that's not their median, but their average is three years. And then for women, it's actually higher incidence. So instead of a third of them, it's a half of them that wind up needing care again this is either for cognitive or for physical or for both um, and of the of those that do there's a need on average of about four years but i the pricing that i use is a little different than yours so my my understanding of this is that people don't usually go from hey i'm walking around I'm super healthy one day and then i'm a nursing home the next instead it's um no it's gradual and we're trying to help mom or dad or whatever the case might be and it winds up we need to bring somebody to come into the home. And then after a while mm, the home so- the solution isn't really working very well anymore cuz you know dad's wandering off. That's probably going to be me by the way. And so the <laughs> and so uh and, and so they say okay we got to have them in an assisted living facility or a memory care. So that's going to cost a little bit more. And then they deteriorate for a little bit more and then they have to move into a nursing home. So it's sort of like staged so on that basis, my my cost assumptions are a little bit lower, but I don't want to just say, you know, bank on the average. I'd like to have you be aware of the possibility that you actually might need a nursing home and you might need it for longer. So let's just assume that all three years, all four years, as the case may be, are in a nursing home and then a private room, nursing home here in Northern Illinois or in, in Northern Illinois, West Michigan, is about 85000 a year right now. So go, as you said, with inflation on that, and there you 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 come to the number, and if it winds up that you do get that more gentle, gradual approach, great. Your money lasts longer, and it could go five or six years, and you won't go. Oh my gosh, why did we only have that shorter policy?
1: Yeah. Well, and um, your conclusion is the same, though. In terms, of there is a need, and this could um, completely derail their retirement. If they yes,
2: it. absolutely. In this client's case. So yes. in this
1: client's case, uh, it's so. We we run two things. First, we run that scenario of do they do they need it? Do they have the option to self insure or do they not need it? Right. And when I say the option to self-insure versus not needing it, 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 it's kind of one and the same. But the way I view it differently is I view it as three groups. One where you don't have enough for retirement if you enter a long-term care facility, it it completely throws your retirement off. Two is this group in the middle where um you could potentially self-insure, but do you want to self-insure versus insurance? And three, you have the group with the high higher level of assets where you almost look at long-term care insurance as asset protection as opposed to the medical side, uh, right? So, But in their case, this case, they were in group one where I viewed it as, all right, you've got to get some kind of coverage in place because the risk is just too high. You go from potentially being on track to, to there's no way you can do it. Once I come to that conclusion, I look at long-term care cost. I add that cost in. You know, what's long-term care going to cost you? Then I add in my assumptions that the the adjustments I made it er, made earlier about needing additional growth and needing um, to extend Social Security. And when you add all that up, now you've increased your expenses significantly because you're paying for long-term care. Um, uh, they are. The final conclusion with all these adjustments is there is still a shortage. I've got them having enough money till age ninety seven, as opposed to age one hundred. Now, going back to my initial uh, moderate—that's after I made the adjustments for yours. When I use my initial moderate, which was that six percent long-term average rate of return, my inflation still at a little under three point eight percent. They have with the long-term care insurance that they now have enough till ninety nine. So they're a year short of my target for them. And Eric, you alluded to this earlier. They still own the home, their possibility for reverse mortgages and so on. So if they were comfortable with the 99 number, I'd feel comfortable with it. And as I said, I dynamically adjust their plan. So every six months or every year, we'll get an update to say, okay, does this still hold true? Thoughts, what are are your thoughts, approaches, conclusions on long-term care?
2: Yeah, well, I like what I like the way that you shape that. Uh, I I think that's the the right solution. I just want to for our listeners who are calibrating their own circumstances with those that Adrian mentioned at the outset. So when we said that their their net worth is in the two million dollar uh, two million dollar area, we should clarify that that includes the value of their home, and that includes you know the vehicles and furniture, and that includes cash that they want to keep on hand. So. In terms of the the assets that they've earmarked for retirement, it's about 1.2 million. And again, bear in mind, they have some pensions, they have some decent, really, you know, quite decent social security income streams that would be coming in. So, you know, in their case, at least $100,000 a year would be coming in the door if they wait till 70 and 69 and the pensions and so forth, at least that amount would be coming in the door and growing with inflation. So, you know, we're... We're using that as a base. So, you, if you're trying to say, "Well, gee, I I'm worth about two million, so maybe do I barely need it?" Well, it, you know, it kind of depends. So, there's there's other factors. So, you know, I'm just gonna throw this out as an invitation to you. If you're kind of scratching your head and thinking on any of the questions that we've addressed here, you know, what's true in my case? That's what we're here for. And so, if you give us a holler, you can find our contact information in the show notes. And we would be happy to have an exploratory conversation with you about how we could really help you answer that question with precision.
1: Yeah, I completely agree. We are definitely here here to help.
3: Yeah, and I think we touched on some uh, really great points today. We went over a, do- uh, a number of different assumptions and we really showed how some minor adjustments can really change or really improve or whatever it may be for a financial plan. I think it's a uh, it's a, it's a really great discussion to have, and I, I was expecting a little bit more heated debate, but Roche and Eric, you seem like you two uh, were working together on this one with uh, reading each other's mind, but it was a great discussion that we have. Um, please like and subscribe and talk about our videos with other people. We're now on YouTube as well, so you can listen and also watch the videos as well. This has been another episode of the Retirement Lifestyle Show, and thank you for joining us today.
0: Ray voices schedule a conversation with roshan adrian or eric today at retirementlifestyleshow.com roshan and eric are certified financial planner practitioners they along with adrian are investment advisor representatives and serve clients across the u.s with financial planning and investment advice through rta wealth if you found this show helpful gain knowledge or enjoy the time you spent with us Tell your friends and leave us a five-star review. This will help others discover the show. To access our show notes, to download any of the tools mentioned in today's podcast, to ask us a question or to schedule a conversation, go to retirementlifestyleshow.com. All opinions expressed by podcast hosts and guests are solely their own. While based on information they believe is reliable, neither RT Wealth nor its affiliates warrants its completeness or accuracy, nor do their opinions reflect the opinion of RT Wealth. This podcast is for general informational purposes only and should not be regarded as specific advice or recommendations for any individual. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. The show hosts offer investment advice through Arte Wealth Advisors, LLC, and SEC-registered investment advisor, and securities through Arte Wealth Management, LLC, Member, FEMRA, SIPC, and NFA. Finally, our music is The Chance by Jason Shaw in Audionautics. It's part of the YouTube Audio Library, and it's licensed under a Creative Commons license. I am Ray Voices. Thank you for listening.